the most important part about that conversation is the realization of ego and how it stops us from doing things that make a positive impact in our world. And people can't reconcile that when I say it. They don't understand what the two have to do with each other. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Man Talks Podcast. My name is Roger Nairn. And I'm Connor Beaton. Today we have another great guest. His name is Mark Brand. Mark is one of Vancouver's most recognized social entrepreneurs. Successfully operating eight businesses in the downtown area, he's become a prominent example of a new generation of leadership. A fighter for Vancouver's downtown east side, Mark, as a social entrepreneur, is determined to breathe new life into the struggling and disjointed community. And he's doing this by finding a balance between sound business practices and social justice. Connor, what did you uh, like the most about our conversation with Mark? Oh man, there's a lot of of really in-depth conversation here. You know, I think Mark touches on entrepreneurialism. He touches on tapping into your purpose. And I think one of the biggest pieces and one of the most important pieces to this podcast is that he digs into, you know, some of the things that we always want to go and take action on. You know, like we see those things in our society, like homelessness or addicts, and he's taken action on them in a huge, huge way. And he really breaks it down into a very small and meaningful conversation of how you can take action and how you can start to give back. I think we all want to give back. Yeah, he just does it in a really, really meaningful way. Yeah. So he talks. He talks about his, your your genius and yeah. bringing bringing out you know focusing on your genius, which is incredible. Uh, before we get into the interview, we wanted to thank our sponsor, Van City Buzz. Uh, do you love Vancouver? Stay connected to your city with the latest in news, events, sports, music, and more with Van City Buzz. Check out vancitybuzz.com or search Van City Buzz on social media. So we asked Mark, you know, what is his favorite thing to do in the city these days? What's something that he gets excited about? And his answer was something seasonally that I I really enjoy is the farmer's market. And people just associate that with like spring and summer and all the different locations they set down. But there's a winter one as well. And so cool to go check out. I mean, we are very fortunate to be living in BC where we have an abundance of cool product. And our farmers are also really good at canning. And so there's cool stuff up there now that we can have microbreweries representing Plug Plug and all of the other folks that show up to them. They're just great. And it's a good way to support your community. And let's get on to the interview with Mr. Mark Brand. Mark Brand, welcome to the Mad Talks podcast. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. Pleasure. Uh, one of the first questions that we always like to ask our guests right off the bat, it's a, it's a deep question, but we think it's an important question. I wonder if you can tell us a story about a defining moment for you as a man. Yeah, I've got a favorite defining moment, and uh, it happened about three blocks from where we are right now in Gastown. So I started a bunch of businesses down here, and one of the things that kept reoccurring to me was how am I going to make a deeper impact here? And I couldn't really reconcile that. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't say, well, the businesses do about 15% profit because we're primarily in the restaurant industry. If we're doing our best job ever, which we weren't and is is very tough to attain. So even with that, there's not a lot of free cash. So donation models wouldn't work for us. I thought, how could I make bigger impact specifically by helping people find jobs? There's a lot of people who wanted to work in the neighborhood and who helped us during all of our builds, which was awesome because the labor was much less expensive and it did come with a lot of experience and I got to know a lot of folks down here, but I couldn't figure out how to build a bigger model. So we would have like a dishwasher and the dishwasher would fall to pieces because it would relapse and you know my whole staff would be devastated. And so that's a risk that a lot of people wouldn't be willing to take. And I was walking out of my house uh, just before Christmas in 2010. Uh, 2009, sorry. And a guy that I'd seen in the neighborhood all the time, uh, who was kind of one of my definition of what a, a hardworking man looked like. 
Um, his name is Michael Haggerty. He goes uh, by Football Mike on the street. And I'd never spoken to him. I never had any sort of discussions with him and couldn't real, I couldn't figure out why that was a problem uh, for me. And the fact was he just scared the shit out of me. Like I was very intimidated by him and what his situation was, but he also fascinated me. So I'd see him cleaning up every single day, like outside I get to work at six, 7 AM. He's out there sweeping. And one of the things that struck me was who pays this guy? You know, just in a very rudimentary sense, like who's paying this guy's wages? Like I don't see an official city vest on. And he's also doing one arm push ups like off trees and doing all these weird like yard prison yard style workout regimes just on the corner. So it's fascinated. And he always looked really put together. And that morning when I walked out of my house, it was uh, one of the rare mornings that it snows down here. And Mike was across the street and he was covered in snow and he was laying on a piece of cardboard. And it just sort of hit me in my core. And I was like, oh, why? What is going on over there? I wonder what's happened to him. I didn't even really know his name. I wonder what's happened to him. And at that moment, something changed and I, I decided I'd go over and see him. But before that happened, I had this massive butterfly, like first day of school sort of feeling. And what am I going to say? And that was, I put a pin in that moment for myself because that was a, a real transformational realization of ego and fear. And so I went over to him and, and kneeled down. I was like, hey, man, are you okay? And he looked up at me and uh, said, no, which of course he did. Uh, so great, great way to fucking start. And we got into a conversation which was really uh, intense in around what had happened to him and, and what his current situation was. And that's a story for another time. But the most important part about that conversation is the realization of ego and how it stops us from doing things that make a positive impact in our world. And people can't reconcile that when I say it. They don't understand what the two have to do with each other. And so in the simplest explanation for me as a man, my biggest growth in that realm was realizing I was scared that something would be asked for of me that I couldn't deliver or that I would become uncomfortable or I would be afraid to say no. And I think the key takeaway from that is I, me, 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 I. And it has nothing to do with you. So the second that you come to terms with the fact that you can engage every single human being and it's going to have a positive result or a negative result regardless of their station in life. That's what interactions are. I have to deal with assholes all day. <laughs> like it doesn't necessarily mean they're marginalized. Yeah. Uh, you become much more impactful in the world and you can do a lot more good uh, and also receive a lot more good. I think that openness to those conversations are, have been my greatest learnings. So me as a man dropping my shoulders, taking away sort of the facade and, and the mask, the tough guy walk around here mask and say, okay, let's really engage this community. Hmm. Awesome. And it, yeah, I mean, it's, that's an incredible story. So, so give us an idea of what you're up to these days and, and how you got into the, the industry that you're in and where, where that sort of led you, you know, to the path that you, that you're at now. I thought you said we only had 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll jump Coles around. Notes. The calls notes. We yeah, need right? the calls notes. So I'll jump around a little bit and just pull me back in when I meander too far uh, as I tend to do. So I started working in the food and beverage industry when I was 12 years old. Uh, I started making pizza. Uh, for cash under the table. And where, where was this? Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. <laughs> okay. You know, the beautiful destination of Dartmouth, Nova awesome. Scotia. Still my, uh, awesome. still, still my home away from home. <laughs> and yeah, started hustling early and had a paper route and all those sorts of pieces, but fell in love with uh, making something and watching people really enjoy it. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like you can have an impact and in, in people's daily lives just by feeding them something delicious. And my uh, aunt was an amazing chef, a non-measured chef as well. Just a pinch of this, a dash of that, never wrote a recipe down. My grandmother, the same. And so both of my families uh, came from very poor situations and worked their way up off the ground. My mom started working at 12 as well, multiple jobs. My dad uh, just faced a whole bunch of adversity and crushed through and, and made a really good go of it. So I had great leaders in my life. 
And a lot of the stuff kept coming back to food. And as I started to travel, food, 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 entertainment, those sorts of things. And I got started here in 2004, five. I was uh, Shambar's first big bar manager. I was there for two years through the, the initial craziness uh, that was Shambar, the phenomenon that was Shambar. And working with those guys really opened my mind to the opportunities uh, as a young entrepreneur that, you know, that we have this feeling that you can't go for it and that there's too many barriers in your way and the big guys always do it better and all these sorts of things that we just believe in business and the intimidation factor is there. Unless we have somebody to mentor us, which, you know, if we can stop for a second, is the single most important thing in a business career is having good mentors. So I, I consider Nico and Carrie mentors and, and watch them go through like having two cans of beans left in the cupboard is the, the famous tail uh, to having 450 people at the door uh, by creating something that was really individual, unique, and the quality level was super high. So it was very inspired in that and thought worst case scenario, and I say this to people all the time, you can always go back to being a bartender, in which I'm still aware that I may have to do at some right. point, <laughs> but I'm really good at it. Yeah. So it's okay. <laughs> and it's also not a very stressful job. So I probably made more money bartending at Shambar than I have in my professional career. Uh, but Knowing, knowing that that's there, I think, you know, we took a risk. So I battled with some addiction issues myself and some other problems and sort of rose up what, with What were you addicted to? All kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and no, no intravenous drugs or anything crazy like that. But I had, uh, I, I battled with booze and typical narcotics that we do in our industry, which is, I don't think as much a, a, a veiled secret as it used to be, but you know, from chefs to front of house people, et cetera, you can't do 17 hour days, seven days a week and not do something. Uh, so it's it's very difficult in, in that realm to keep that level of performance. Uh, and coming out of that, I realized that that wasn't going to be my story. That wasn't going to define me. I wasn't going to end up being that guy who's 45 and a mater D at Lacroix. You know, it wasn't going to be where I ended up. Uh, and took a kick at the can with some really passionate, really great people, and opened Benita uh, two blocks from here as well. Yeah. <laughs> way back when, uh, before the laboratories, before the cork and fins, before anything happened down here, and people thought we were crazy. Like they said as much, like yeah. you're, you're going to be closed in a couple months. Nobody is going to come down there. Right. I think I rem remember actually reading something about it, uh, when it was close to opening up and, and how it was like, Oh, it's in such a like bad area and it's going to be a tough go. And I'm not too sure why, like, I just remember reading the article and it was basically exactly as you said, like they must be crazy. Right. <laughs> and I think that that's, there's, there's like, there's crazy risk and then there's like smart risk. Right. So, so tell me about why you decided to make that choice? Like what drove you to actually open up Bonitas in that area, knowing that it was a pretty significant risk? Uh, many things. One, I this neighborhood was always my favorite place. Yeah. So I spent all my time here. I lived blocks away. East Vancouver was where I landed. Uh, I said, if I'm going to open anything, it will be in East Van or you know in Gastown proper. And secondary, that's the oldest building that stands up in Gastown. Mm -hmm. If you look at the corner point on Cordova and Carroll, it was the original planning center of Vancouver. That pillar right there. So that's where everything began in our entire city. Pretty cool. Yeah. You got to have a good story to tell a guest. And also you can feel it in the space. And 30 foot ceilings for $9 a square foot, we'll take it. You know, let's just go in. It was already a restaurant. We didn't have any kind of money. We had no kind of investors because, because crazy. Yeah. Uh, and also it's a block away from Pigeon Park. It still is. So at that time, obviously the neighborhoods changed dramatically, but you're talking about the largest open air drug market in North America. Not in Canada, in North America, which still exists. And you've never been afraid to open businesses around that. No. Well, why is that? Because people. You know, I think, again, going back to that story, it's one of those things. And I used to show people police statistics. You're like, you're safer here than you are in most neighborhoods. Just don't leave your laptop on your car. 
like in your car with it where it being visible because that's going to get stolen mm. anywhere, yeah. not just here. Yeah. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's crimes of opportunity, not crimes against people. And it's crimes of desperation that would happen down here. So none of my, none of my employees, and we've had hundreds and hundreds over the years work down here have ever been assaulted, have ever had any issues. It's just not that place. And it's wonderful and it's colorful. And I define the rest of the city. Uh, in blocks. And I, I do this a lot when I'm speaking and say, you know, I went to Yale town and it didn't care much for me because I didn't fit the mold of what it was or Cole Harbor, et cetera. And that's no slight on them. If anything, it's on me. Uh, and where would I culturally fit in and where did I feel most at home? Well, amongst people of all sorts of different denominations and mental illness and all those sorts of pieces just felt like home. Mm. So you open up Benita and then I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to pass these over as if they're not a big deal, but you, you open up a few more restaurants after that. And eventually you got to save on meats. Mm -hmm. So tell us the story about how that came about. Cause for those that don't know, save on meats used to be a, a you know, a well, well-run, well-established meat, uh, our butcher in the city. And then it went a little bit downhill. It's pretty much in one of the worst parts of the city, uh, or it used to be one of the worst parts of the city. Ground zero. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you, you, you took it over. Yeah, I mean, it's a, an interesting story. It's actually kind of a quick one because it turns into a whirlwind for me when it all happens. So at that point, we were operating six, sorry, seven businesses and eight uh, cost centers um, with the head office of four people. And so it was a day to day. They used to call me the jailkeeper because I had a set of keys, like a double leather strap <laughs> set of keys with literally 60 keys on it that I'd walk with in my hand. And yeah. so my day to day routine was, you know, it was seven days a week. It was nonstop. And we were having great success, commercially successful. People loved what we were doing and, and they loved to watch the rise. And then, uh, Al and I, Delorier, who's the former owner, I was speaking with him and he said, I'm going to retire. I said, well, after 57 years, I think that's fair. <laughs> you know, you've definitely put in your time yeah. and done more than anybody else that I know right. as a shopkeeper in this neighborhood for food security. And he didn't know what that meant uh, per se uh, and our community, et cetera. So, you know, I had a pipe dream and I said to my best friend, Alex Yuso and my wife at the time and still a very good friend, Nicole, I said, we need to do this project. I need to do this project. And the only problem was we had no money and no leverage and like no assets, nothing to, to go ahead and do it with. Uh, and yet we knew we had to do it. I said, this is the, this looping back. This is the project that will allow us to define a difference and to create a model that will be, I used to always say enterprise that's social, not social enterprise, uh, to specifically say, we're going to do business. We're going to prove metrics that we can do really good for our community while still just being proper business people, right. uh, which was really interesting because I'd done no research to that effect <laughs> <laughs> or knew nothing about it whatsoever, but I was damn sure we were going to do it. So one of our great friends uh, invested money that allowed me to leverage out a lot of finance through Van City, the Vancouver Foundation, building opportunities for business, um, the Commercial Drive Credit Union, et cetera. And they all came in with little pieces. And I was in New York, actually. I got a phone call from my partner now in Persephone Brewing, who was helping me put the deal together. And he said, we got the finance. And I said, oh, that's great. How much of it did we get? And he said, all of it. I was like, shit. <laughs> so we've got to do this thing. He's like, I don't know what this we thing is you're talking about. but <laughs> This is all you, bro. Good luck, my man. And then Save On was born, dude. And awesome. it's, you know, the four-year roller coaster ride of having our own reality show for eight episodes and 60 hours a week and so five months. So and tell us about that. I mean, reality show, downtown east side, Vancouver. First of all, reality shows in Vancouver at those times, that wasn't a thing. Nobody nobody came to Vancouver. Nobody did stuff in Vancouver. No. Nobody wanted to tell the Vancouver story. Yeah. So, I mean, I we'd been approached a bunch of times to do reality shows around the restaurant because it was just, I mean, legendary chaos at Bonita and at the Dime. Just the stuff that 
we can only tell stories of now <laughs> because it was just so crazy. So then I always said, no, you're going to blow my spot up. Like the last thing I need is you seeing my partners and I fight for 45 minutes with commercials. Uh, so no, thank you. <laughs> and uh, they were, you know, a lot of people came back and back, but it was one woman, Louise Clark specifically, she was starting a production company called Lark Productions. Um, that's done some great work here. And she came to me and she was really passionate about the work we were doing. And she said, we should do something about this show. I was like, nah. No, I'm not interested. Love you. Best of luck, but definitely not, especially in this neighborhood. It's way too sensitive and there's just too many things going on. I'll just get killed right. like, and that'll be the end of it. And she said, well, I, can we just do a sizzle? Let's just shoot something and then let's see and we'll take it to market. And I said, okay, but here's the, the rules from my side. You can never interrupt or stop us because it's too busy. There's just simply no way to do that at all. You can't script us. There can be no script. Right. We'll give you enough fodder, trust. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's more than enough for one series, if not five. Right. Uh, and then lastly, I get I get final say. Yeah. So whatever happens, I get final say on all of the edits. I'll do OTFs or a wrap-up shoots for you so we can tie an actual story together. But outside of that, no. And so whenever I tell my TV folks about this, like, so they told you to go screw yourself. Right. It's like, no, they actually took it yeah. and, and went with Which it. Which never happens. Ever. Ever. <laughs> and so they, I shot the sizzle. The sizzle was really great. I mean, it's very unique. You're not going to see anything really like it. And they took it to market. And I got a phone call from Louise. And she was in uh, D.C. And she said, the show has been approved to shoot an episode. I said, oh, amazing. Who got it? Like Food Network or who was it? She said, no, Oprah. Yeah. And I just started laughing. The I was like, yeah, no, network. she didn't. And I was like, did you show her a picture of me? <laughs> Does she know anything about me? Because that's – and she's like, no, they love it. They absolutely love it and they're going to fund it and they want to do this as one of their first shows on the network for the Oprah network, for the own network. And uh, that was it, man. Five months later, three camera crews running through the neighborhood, you know, talking to all the people I know here being like, don't worry if this is not going to go to the police. Right, right, right. You know, it's chill. Yeah, These guys yeah. are all really nice. But those guys – The Oprah police. Exactly. Right. The guys who shot the show became part of the neighborhood. They were wow. in in it right like they knew everybody on the street just as well and everybody got their show time and yeah. it was it was really interesting so walk us through i mean it's it's you know it's for those that don't know save on meats isn't just a restaurant it, it has a, a very strong social you know social uh, business aspect to it and um wondering if you can walk us through what what that looks like sure yeah i mean we we say that we hacked a butcher shop and essentially try to continually hack it for social good and so i'm at it all the time like we're not stopped by any means so we're four years in and we've done four different renovations on how to shape it. The only thing that stayed stabilized is the diner. So I took the butcher and I split it right, right down the middle, created a, about 2,200 foot butcher shop. And for anybody who does retail, they know that that's just stupid, uh, <laughs> which it was. And then the diner, the same size, encompassing a sandwich window up front that would service the community. So to make sure that people knew in the neighborhood that we were there for them. Uh, and so I put that there to be like a touch point come see us, talk to us. We're friendly. We're not changing anything. Uh, and again, all my own arrogance and ego. Nobody gave a shit that I owned it. Nobody even knew. And day one, when we opened, the whole neighborhood came. So that was debunked pretty quickly. Uh, but yeah, what it does there is we run 12 programs through my charity, A Better Life Foundation as well. I found it extremely difficult to raise money for 65-year-old men who used intravenous narcotics and had mental illness. People are not fucking excited about that. Right. And, you know, It's the puppies, babies, and everything in between. And why are you excited? Because that could be me. It could be you. It could be any of us. You know, that mental illness is what fails. Uh, what happens to so many people is they, they fall to that and they don't have a support system. And then ultimately they're self-medicating, you know, the great Riverview tale uh, of our mental institution shutting down a lot of folks coming down here. And I got a lot to say on that topic, but we'll leave it alone. Uh, you know, this 
this thought that us as a society and us as Canadians will allow men like that and women like that to slip through the cracks and just live out their days and die in these alleys is, is unfucking acceptable. So what I did was we have multiple projects. We work with the downtown Eastside Women's Center, megaphone vendors. And for those who don't know, it's a magazine. Here's one right here for people to find upward mobility through employment. And we support projects like that consistently. If you're trying to take a step in the right direction, you'll get a meal from us every day. And that's really quite complex, all the different things that we do. But that all happens at a Save on Meats. And we employ people through a barrier employment program uh, that I totally screwed up the first time. It was so badly, famously, uh, and then pivoted and figured out how to do it right. So we work with over a dozen agencies that help people find employment from incarcerated teens all the way through to you know women who've suffered uh, very deep domestic and mental abuse. And we are one of the landing pads where you can come and find a family, work, work for a purpose as well. So you're feeding other people in your neighborhood. And that's really the core entity that Save On is. Outside of that, we make the best burger in the country. And, you know, we do really great food and cater and do all of those other pieces. And of course, our, our token program runs out of there, which is a pretty famous one. So, you know, maybe give, give us some insight into how did you... <laughs> like, where did you even start? Because this, this is a lot of stuff. And I think for most most people that are listening, I think most people want to start to make a difference in some capacity, right? They they have a, a, a sort of like a passion of, of helping, you know, people that are 65 and over that are addicted to intravenous drugs, or they have eating disorders, or, you know, whatever the case may be, everybody has like that thing that they're like, I'm really passionate about that. I want to find a way to make a difference in that area. How do I do it? You know, I, I think for a lot of people, they just don't even know where to start, right? Because there's there's volunteer programs, there's donation programs, like there's there's so many different areas and avenues. What is sort of like one piece of advice that you could give the listeners around where to begin with either starting their own charity or contributing to another charity or volunteering? Like, what does that look like? Sure, I, and I'll use a couple anecdotes to to lighten the tone before I get serious, <laughs> just to telemark what I'm going to do right here. I'd be a terrible football player. It's perfect. Uh, it's good. Lay it up. So uh, a woman came to see me. She called and asked for a meeting. She was pretty passionate about it and she was pretty serious about it. You know, she followed up email like, I've got, I've got a solution for you. And a lot of people had solutions and continue to have solutions for me. And those are finger quotations that they can't see, which I shouldn't be using. Uh, so she comes down to have a meeting with me and sits across the table uh, and we get a coffee. And I'm like, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. You're very, very, very excited. She said, well, I have the solution. I work as HR for a tech company. I was like, cool, great start. How does that relate? Yeah. And she said, I have 1,200 employees. I was like, good for you. A tech company is obviously doing very well. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> like, we are all going to rally and come down for one day that you choose and help out in the downtown east side. Like mic drop. Yeah. He leans back in her chair yeah. and has a big swig of coffee. <laughs> I was like, okay. First of all, thank you. And I appreciate you being so passionate about this. And I appreciate everybody's willingness. But next Thursday, I've got 268 employees. I'm going to come to your office and you're going to let me and them do some work. And she went kind of white. She's like, what the hell would you do? I was like, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. exactly. <laughs> right. I know you think this is a good fucking idea, <laughs> yeah. but there's people in the working in the informal economy here cleaning up, which is something you might want to do. Or you might come down and make some really shitty soup that nobody wants to eat. Like, I don't mean any offense by this, but how about we set up a volunteer program where we find out all of your genius, which is what I like to say all the time. And two things. Share your genius and people support what they co-create. Right. The second one being so important. If you're going to build something with somebody who's passionate about 65-year-old men or whatever the thing may be, allow them to share their genius and co-create it. Mm. What is that? 
So what is it that you're really good at? So when somebody comes to meet me and they're like, I really want to share, can I come and help you? And I don't know why people default to this. And they always say it really awkwardly, cook. <laughs> like, no, can you cook? Like, there's yeah. no, I, I cook, you don't cook. Right. You know, you're a lawyer. Yeah. You're way more valuable in this neighborhood as a lawyer. Like anybody can make sandwiches pretty good. We need your help. And so identify if you're listening to this or, or whatever else, identify what it is that you really care about and do that by volunteering at a bunch of different places and just checking it out and seeing where your niche is. And then offer your genius to them. Say, hey, I'm a great web designer. I'm a UX designer. I'm a gardener. I'm, I'm those things. And that way people will come back to the well time and time again. You feel awesome by doing stuff you're good at. Period. You don't feel great doing stuff you're not good at because you're, you're uncomfortable. You're not in flow when you're doing shit like that. You stand on the corner giving out pizza that you ordered. Nobody's excited about it aside from the people getting the pizza. But we've developed this culture where it's like that is the thing to do is, you know, you, do, you, you, know, you, you donate, you know, eight hours of your time over the, over the course of six months to some charity and you feel like you've, you've, you've done your God. You've done these amazing things. Um, how, do we, how do we shift that culturally? to that, to, you know, to, 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 to what you just said. Of I got a lot of ideas on that. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I better, by the yeah, way, yeah, yeah. I better have a lot of ideas. Yeah. On I think the other thing to remember is the resources of an NGO or an MPO or, or an operating charity, uh, unless you're one of the big boys, you know, way army, et cetera, army, Navy. Wow. Yeah. The Salvation Army, also known as, right. uh, they don't have the resources to onboard volunteers very often. So people say, I tried to volunteer at X and they said that they didn't have space for me. Can you believe that? Yeah. Like, yes, because they got to train you to do a job they're already doing and they don't have the bandwidth. So for me, I think uh, community development through donation models has just gone really, really poorly. Uh, there's a lot of stories that have hit, you know, the headlines, uh, the Haitian stories, all of those pieces that just make people terrified of charity. Like, I'm not giving money to a black hole so some guy can drive a Range Rover around Haiti. Like, okay, all of that's very ignorant, but yes, okay, I get it. So we've created models where people actually see where their dollars are impacting. They see it, they touch it, they feel it, they can do whatever they want and around it to vet it, which is really cool. So our Greasy Spoon Diner series is really fun. It encapsulates everything we're talking about. It allows chefs from the city to share their genius by cooking. It allows other companies to get involved via bringing their stuff to the table and to work. And then it has – there's not a lot of pressure in it. Right. So 70 people come twice to eat in an the evening. They sit down. They enjoy a great meal. They get all over the internet about it, which is advocating for us on a side note. And then we talk to them for 7 to 10 minutes about a particular cause that we're aligned with. So it could be a megaphone vendor and myself explaining what it is that we do with them. They leave learning a, about a new organization and exactly where and why they can help there and what they need. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a job posting for an organization like that, right? We need this. And then secondary, we're creating a new program we'll launch in the spring um, that's a 50 cents a day donation program. And we're trying to catch groundswell. Mm -hmm. So we're partnered with Blueprint Agencies, with Live Nation, Brand Live, a bunch of other groups in and around the concert going age. And then also on the other side, for-profit businesses that have worked with us before that want to do that as a donor match. It doesn't seem like a lot of money, but the metrics really crush. So what we're able to do then as a charity and as a foundation is have that room to onboard other people who really want to help. Uh, but at the moment, we just don't have that bandwidth. We're, we find ourselves in the same place. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest one of the biggest issues. I mean, we've had the pleasure to sat down, sit down with John Bromley, uh, who came and spoke from Chimp, and you know the guys from Change Heroes and Plastic Bank and David Cass and stuff like that. And you know, one of the some of the biggest challenges that they face is that they just don't have the bandwidth, like you said, to give people things to do, you know? So <laughs> I love, I love that story because I think oftentimes, 
you know, people are like, oh, I'll just rally up like a hundred people and we'll just go down there mm. and we'll just dish out some soup and hand out some sandwiches. And it's just like, but they, maybe they already have enough people doing that and maybe they could use your specific talents and resources in a different way. So is it really about coming up with new and innovative ideas within the sort of like charitable non-for-profit sector where we can like use innovation and ingenuity to kind of shift that conversation and use like mainstream social media and stuff like that for the listeners that are out there? Is that sort of the direction that they can kind of go? I think so, man. I think there's a lot in what you just said. I think there's multiple streams to build off there. But really, it, what it comes down to is if we look at the metrics of just like BC, we got three plus million people. We have a homeless count that is done by a clipboard, which I every time I say it out loud, I'm like, I can't believe we still do this. And, you know, bless us. We're still trying to get somewhere. And that's the only tech that we have for the moment, for the moment. What would be the alternative to that? Uh, I think there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a great alternative to people being able to self-identify and to be able to join their community. I'm working on a project to do that right now. So hopefully the, we'll be able to provide the city with those sorts of metrics sooner than later. But if you look at the numbers just straight down to it, we say there's 20,000 people who don't identify as homeless that are living in their cars or with their family or whatever that looks like. Identified maybe five to 6,000 people fluctuating. I still think those numbers aren't, aren't real. But if we just say there's 30,000 people right who need help, well, the percentile there, I'm pretty sure if we could find a way for everybody to rally and get people in homes, it would work. So universally, it's more expensive to have somebody on the street than it is to house them. San Francisco said it's 70% less expensive in their market to house somebody than to have them deal with emergency services and all those sorts of pieces. We identified it here with a couple of really cool articles that came out as about 35 to 40%. So that's our money. That's our money that's coming out of our pockets going into funds that are just not helping properly. So the other piece on that, and I'll, I'll promise to kick the soapbox away after this, no, is no. the people who can help with solutions overseas and pieces that are like, I don't know how to collect rainwater. Football Mike does. Like I don't, I don't know these things, but the people in our neighborhood are the best solution makers because they've had to live through adversity. So if we're using those great minds that have now got stability to do attack bigger problems, that's a really cool model. And I get really excited about that stuff. That's pretty awesome. What gonna gonna get a little, little personal here? What are some of your core beliefs? Oh man, that's an interesting question. <laughs> Around what? Just about life in general. I mean, what are you know when you say to yourself, what are what are some of the things that define you? Oh man, also a broad question, and and I'm interested in in answering it as succinctly as I can. So uh, I think I think I think what maybe what Roger was trying to say is in like, you have some pretty clear vision of what you want to accomplish mm -hmm. and you are a huge advocate for being of service to other people, which is, you know, what this podcast is all about, what we're all about right. and, and what we're trying to accomplish. And so I think, you know, what are some of those core values that drive this sort of sensation and this vision that you have for being of service to other people? Because it, it seems like this should be, this should be common sense. Like everybody should have, yeah. I feel everybody should have the same level of drive that it's almost unacceptable for us to not be doing things as human beings to be of service to other people and help other people and, and to pick a sort of like not cause, but to pick something that we can really impact positively and start to shift that narrative or whatever it looks like. So I think behind that drive lie some very um, strong values and some strong morals. And 
I think that's what we're curious about. Sure. Uh, I feel I feel like you just answered the question for me. Uh, do I just say yes? Yes. Um, I just say yes. Yeah. And I, I guess the most more interesting response to that is where do those come from and why? Yeah. And that morality and those values come from a laundry list of mistakes in those realms. You know, I've done things that I'm really disappointed myself in, in, in the heat of the battle and the heat of the moment. Uh, and so when you do that stuff and you have a really good hard look at yourself and you get really honest with yourself and with others uh, is where your strength and your core comes from. And I felt that I had lost that a few years ago. Like I was floundering really heavily uh, and was disappointed with myself and, and just kind of sick with everything that had happened or transpired because I'd let it get to a point that I couldn't control it properly. And when you think about that and when my team and I go through a difficult times, like there's 1,300 people a day that are going to eat every single day because we get up and we go to work. Right. Yeah. So and, is that is that how you define success for for what you do? That's another one that people love to ask me. Yeah. And how do you define that? Yeah. And you know, There's I don't so many different things. It, it changes every day. It's a moving target. You know, success for me 3 years ago looked like if we get a couple hundred meals out the door that would be wonderful. Now we're at 1300 and we're completely unsatisfied. Like where do we get to now? So I'm taking the token project that we launched in the downtown east side to New York in April. Wow. I'm there next week discussing with partners that's going to launch there. We just did a clothing token that we launched with the guys from is in Frank's, so you can get a pound of clothes for $5 so people can go shop for clothing with dignity versus getting your shitty sun ice jacket that has a tear in the back right. uh, that nobody wants. The, um, the, the word you just use, dignity, is something that I've always – I've always associated the work, the social, you know, the social work that you do. You know, it's, it, it seems like you are giving dignity to, the, to these people. Where did, where did that come from? I feel like it's almost like they're giving me dignity uh, and and we are giving each other dignity. It's a much more inclusive circle. <clears throat> and it came from that football mic conversation. You know, it really was, oh, man, like we've had blinders on for this for too, too long. And especially us, like working right in this neighborhood. And how can we create that upward mobility and stability for people who are struggling? Because there's a lot of different people who do things really well. Atira and PHS do housing exceptionally well. They do really good support systems. We do food better than anybody else and employment in that realm better than anybody else. So how do we just form a super team? And I was luckily enough uh, on with the task force and with the group at council on Monday – and I'd never seen anything quite like it because there's a lot of people everywhere in the world when you talk about these situations who are vying for different pots, who are very working siloed. And there was 40 different groups and council and eight people who had worked through uh, rehabilitative employment all in the room, Coast Sailors representation, and everybody was nice to each other. And I was blown away. And I was like, oh, my God, are we all going to be really nice for three and a half hours? And yes, because I think that we're at the generation now that some of the old leadership has moved on and folks are like, let's fucking get this right. Let's just get it right. So a lot of my weeks contain me meeting with other people and strategizing on how to get greater dignity and upward mobility for populations mm -hmm. and going switching hats getting to work with the Minister of, Social, Minister of Social Justice at the President's Council with the head of YVR, the head of Van City, and all these folks around the table saying, we have to get people with disabilities more employment. And I'll, I'll give you some fun stats on this because it's a thing I'm a huge advocate for. In my industry, 78% of people turn over a year in service. It just is what it is. They're transient. They're actors. Actors. Uh, they are studying they are looking for more money, whatever that may be. And it's very difficult. So at a median cost, it's about $2,000 to train any employee in service or in retail. That doesn't show up on the balance sheet. It doesn't show up on a P&L because it's manager hours, it's loss of product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a burn. So if you've got a 50-person business, do the math on that. People with 
disabilities, whether they be mental or physical or whatever else in between, turn over on average, a national average of under 30%. Mine turn over on a national or national, on my average of less than 5%. Wow. So they've been there three years, four years, five years in the positions that are very difficult to fill. Now, the rest of my staff turns over at a much lesser rate because they're there working for a purpose. They work shoulder to shoulder with people who have found dignity, who found purpose, who really love what they do and also create a pretty awesome fucking workplace. Right. Uh, so that has changed our business model and saved me tens of thousands of dollars. When I tell traditional business people that, that's when I finally hooked them. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's the catch is that, you know, I love this conversation because, you know, what do you call it? Social enterprise or enterprise for, for social. It really, in, in my brain and in my, experience it really is the future of business yeah it has to be but one of the biggest problems well, not problems but one of the biggest challenges is being able to sort of like present the roi the return on investment to people that are just running this sort of you know quintessential normal business that's all about profit mm -hmm. and has nothing it's not concerned about the triple bottom line or giving back or anything like that so if you were to sort of like give out the two two or three reasons you know you just gave out one um to sort of say, hey, if you're running a business and you're listening to this, um, this is why you should do it. What would you say? So that one for sure. Yeah. The second one is just one sentence. It's the right fucking thing to do. <laughs> and that should be enough. Yeah. It isn't, but it should be enough. And then the last one is you're dead in the water without it. Yeah. Don't you approach anything arrogantly enough? And I get to talk to corporations about this stuff all the time. And I don't think they know what they're getting into booking me a lot of the time, which is great for me. And I'm like, did you ever hear me talk RBC? Like, nope. are you sure you want me to talk at your AGM? And I just say, you're dead. You're literally dead in the water. Yeah. My generation all the way down below me from 11 years old on is vetting every single thing that they do and do know that social, ethical, and eco practices are at the top of those lists. And if you're bullshit CSRing and just doing a donor base to get your cap sorted out, fuck you. And you're going to get found out. Yeah. So you're either really in it and you're about it and you listen to your employees and you listen to what they care about specifically and vet that and then make it impactful in that way, allow them to be involved or your company really has to stand for something. You know, Ben and Jerry didn't get successful for no reason aside from their ice creams delicious. Like these companies, especially in, in America where things are shifting for a certain percentage, we're seeing the exact same thing. You know, coming to 43 West Hastings Street was not the most exciting thing for people three years ago. Families came on the SkyTrain. People come from all over the place specifically because they know where their money's going and what we're doing. And that's wonderful. I mean, they'll, they'll go through whatever it takes. So imagine if you're just a packaged product. Yeah. You have much few, no, fewer barriers than I do to getting to the customer. Right. Just do good stuff and you, you'll see the result. B Corps are on the rise. Of course, we're certified at my brewery and we're certified at Save On. We're one of the first restaurants. I believe in that stuff. Change your whole corporate mandate to say, I'm going to be in service of the planet. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the, in there, I was reading a really cool article recently about millennials and how a lot of companies are really having issues, not only engaging millennials, but keeping them. Mm -hmm. And the article basically dove into why that is. And one of the biggest things is that millennials are looking for purpose-based businesses, mm -hmm. right? They're looking to work for companies like yours who are not only making a difference in the world, but leave them feeling like they're having an impact as well. And they're, they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And, you know, with the sort of normal businesses, you don't feel like that, right? You're just like another cog in the wheel. Uh, whereas with a purpose-based, you know, business, you're actually giving back in some way, shape, or form. And you can feel that direct impact with them. So. We're going to start wrapping up. 
Um, this is a huge and, you know, I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours and hours on end because uh, social enterprise is something that I love talking about. And I know you do as well. And Roger does. So what does it look like in, in 10 years for you? That's a really interesting question and one that I sort of start my days with. And I started to plan about two days ahead when I started business. I was like, what's Friday going to look like? <laughs> and are we going to make payroll? Right. Uh, which still is a concern at points. Uh, but I'm in a 20 to 30 year plan. What is Save on Meats going to be doing in 20 years? Because I have an 18 year lease. It's We're not going anywhere. What's a better life foundation now that's established and, and people are really starting to see it nationally and internationally? What is it going to be and what's the impact that we want it to have in the world? And we. So for me in 10 years, I want to be able to continue to do exactly this work, but on a much grander scale. And I want to be able to use this as the blueprint. So the downtown east side is a social incubator. You know, the densest population of mental illness, of, of drug addiction, of all of the different things that is happening. That's awful. But at the same time, it's incredible to be able to try things out that you can then transplant to other places if they work because you have a great demographic there. So what does that look like for us? Token program, New York in April, San Francisco after that, hitting all the different capitals, being able to bring the blueprints that we've created for Enterprise at Social and just give them to people. Say, do this. This is how it works. This is how you work with the municipal government. This is how you work with your people and your community to co-create this. Those are really important for me. And um, to continue to be as loud and as obnoxious as I can around advocacy for all the issues, man. Like, I just want to continue to to swim in these business worlds and talk to people about how they can make a greater impact. Because ultimately, I could be trying to do as much as I can, but that's going to hit a certain level. Like there's only so much any one individual can do. But if we can continue to have conversations like this and shape the planet in a better way, I think we're in great shape. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, you know, thank you for sharing your voice, not only with us here today, but in general for being that advocate. I think, you know, far too often guys like you, like we need to speak out, you know, like we we have to be the voice. And so a huge, huge props to you. Thank you. I know you don't do it for yourself and you don't do it for the recognition, but thank you for that. And you know, the end game, what does the legacy piece look like for you? It is the enabling of as many people as possible to do the work and the work that they care about and that they love, right? And that's just, that's it. If I can lead and my team can lead by example and lead by flaw as well, like that's something that I really focus on is we fail over and over and over again. And we share those openly and widely to make sure that people feel like this is, this is not a perfect journey. And I think as men, we often fail that way by trying to puff our chests up and pretend everything's okay when it just isn't. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Good stuff. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, for the listeners out there, you can learn more about Mark and his foundation. He's got a gallery. He's got a brewery. He's got all these amazing restaurants. Uh, you can you can learn all about those by, by going to markbrandinc.com. Um, also, he just got on Facebook, we found out. I'm on it right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm messaging you, Roger, yeah. right now. <laughs> You're a jackass. I can't believe you just exactly. told me. <laughs> he lives at yeah. <laughs> And you can learn more about Mantox uh, by visiting mantox.com for more podcasts, blog posts, lots of amazing new articles up there, and information on all of our events. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that it automatically downloads to your uh, to your phone every week. Once again, thanks so much for listening to the Mantox podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with an inspiring man. Yeah.